you could look at the intersection of law and anti-Semitism. Uh, one could look at law and legal institutions as they regulate or attempt to eradicate anti-Semitism, and as legal norms place limitations on the regulation of, of anti-Semitism. One could look at uh, legal institutions and uh, laws uh, that in fact facilitate or reflect anti-Semitism, or that constitute in various ways uh, legal subjects uh, in ways that uh, facilitate anti-Semitism. Uh, law sometimes provides uh, an extension of anti-Semitism, sometimes a limitation on it. All of these are sorts of questions which a field or subfield of anti-Semitism uh, might look at. Uh, during today's presentation, we are, I anticipate, primarily focused on the first, or the first two of these notions, which is to say, to what extent can law be used as a means of limiting anti-Semitism, and to what extent do legal norms place restrictions on that regulation. And I'm very pleased uh, that when I uh, spoke to the three, uh, the three U.S. Uh, legal scholars uh, whose work I, I respect enormously uh, on different aspects of uh, law and anti-Semitism. Uh, while they hadn't worked together, each of them uh, were amenable to arm twisting uh, to come in and, uh, and join this panel, which I think should make today's session a, a, memorable, a memorable affair. Uh, Alex Sessis. Uh, who teaches at uh, Loyola in Chicago, uh, has both uh, breadth and depth. Uh, you might have seen in the, uh, at the booksellers' uh, 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 table downstairs a couple of his several books on various uh, features of uh, constitutional law, uh, where he's looked at the history of civil rights law in the United States, uh, the 13th Amendment in particular, and at other topics. Um, but what has particularly been of interest to me relevant to this gathering uh, is that he is a foremost uh, expert in the field of uh, hate speech. Um, and his book, Destructive Messages, uh, is a landmark in that field uh, and uh, uh, is particularly uh, interesting in his analysis, not just of anti-Semitism, but anti-Semitism and other forms of, of hate as speech and the question of how this can be uh, regulated. Um, uh, second is uh, uh, Professor Stephen Feldman, uh, who holds a uh, chair in uh, law and also teaches political science at the University of Wyoming. Uh, he actually has written uh, a, a book whose importance I can't uh, can stay strongly enough uh, for the uh, potentially emerging field of law and anti-Semitism, uh, which is his book, um, and I love the title. I love the title. His his um, his book on uh, establishment of religion. It's called "Please Don't Wish Me a Merry Christmas." <laughs> Um, which I think for anyone who is seriously interested in looking at uh, constitutional questions, especially law and religion uh, and anti-Semitism, uh, this is, I think, a uh, landmark contribution to what you might call critical legal studies or critical race studies from a, from a, as a Jewish contribution and, 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 and really a, a classic book. Uh, Kenneth Lassen uh, of the University of, of Baltimore, has written extensively numerous books on many different aspects of, of law, 
an extraordinarily uh, fertile mind, uh, but who has written several uh, pieces on different areas that are relevant to, to our subject in diff different ways. Uh, issues of uh, articles relating to, for instance, uh, freedom of speech in the, in the mosques, uh, different aspects of, of anti-Semitism and, and law. Uh, he has for uh, many years been an expert in constitutional law and other, other topics, uh, and really an important figure. Um, I will say a few words uh, at the end. Um, looking at the intersection of uh, civil rights law uh, and uh, uh, anti-Semitism, uh, I direct the anti-Semitism initiative at the Institute for Jewish and Community Research and teach at the City University of, of New York. I'm the former staff director of the U.S. Commission on, uh, on Civil Rights. Uh, the order in which we will speak will be uh, Professor Tsessis, Professor Feldman, Professor Lassen, and then I will speak last. Uh, so now we will begin with uh, Professor um, Alexander Sessis, uh, and his topic uh, today is Internet, New Media, Traditional Stereotypes, Overt Bigotry, and the International Regulation of Hate Speech. Thank you so much. It's an honor being here. Uh, I'm very grateful to Ken Marcus for inviting me. He's done some incredibly important work with a book coming out by Cambridge University Press concerning anti-Semitism on campus. This is the most thorough work on that subject for those of you who are interested in it. It's a, a, a phenomenon that is very, very troubling in details in, in, in great part of any uh, author in the United States. Um, let me, uh, the rubrics of my topic, let me just begin with that, is how anti-Semitism and the regulation of anti-Semitism fits into the bigger picture of regulation of hate speech, both in the international context and in the United States context. By hate speech, I mean anti-Semitic speech, xenophobic speech, white supremacy, racism, and ethnocentrism that is being disseminated through this growing polyvalent form of uh, media of communication. Democracies, of course, are not monolithic, and therefore they have many different standards for the regulation of speech. This is typically considered to be a core right speech, not only in the United States, where we have the First Amendment and the Charter of Freedoms in Canada, in France, in Germany, with different standards, with the United States being more lenient and more libertarian in, in its, uh, the way that it perceives that scholars, the court, uh, perceive speech than in European countries. The, the thought is generally that allowing internet speech, whether it's anti-Semitic or racist, is something that the First Amendment protects and must necessarily protect, otherwise will will infringe on this core value. And yet the reality is a little bit different because there are many limitations on speech. And while in the United States there's a tremendous reluctance to limit and to regulate hate speech and to, to, re to, re to prohibit the dissemination of anti-Semitism from servers that are here to prevent uh, Holocaust denial, which is transmitted from the United States and is transmitted specifically because these groups, uh, such as Sundell's site, have found a place, a haven, where their speech, their, their form of hate speech is protected. Uh, there's a tremendous reluctance to put any limits on it. In reality, we put lots of limits on speech. Copyrights laws are limits on speech. Trademark laws are limits on speech. The, the prohibition 
of presenting oneself as an attorney when one isn't an attorney. The prohibition against saying I am a physician when in reality one is not a physician is something that is prohibited. Identity theft on the internet, we have no problem with limiting it. We have no problem, problem or at least few people, except the, the most extreme libertarians, and I don't mean that in a derogatory term, I mean extreme in the sense that the most hard, hardcore libertarians believe even spam uh, 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 regulation is fine, right? We have a uh, prohibition against spamming without identifying oneself on the internet, and people don't, there's not much controversy about it in this country, but if you try to say that hate speech should be limited, you're going to get a tremendous amount of blowback and a lot of resistance. And uh, it's a curious phenomenon because the perception is that one can insult people using all sorts of stereotypes, whether it's world domination, whether it's the sale of the protocols of the elders of Zion, whether it's the blood libel, is considered to be accepted speech, that counter speech will be enough to, to end it. Right? In other words, if I say I am a physician, I am not, that would be a felony. Well, you think that counter speech should counteract that, right? Someone should be able to simply put forward that here's my proof, Tessus is not a physician. Well, I mean, but, but we don't consider that to be enough. It's easy enough to prove I'm not a physician. You just look up all the licensing in 50 different states, you'll see I am not on a, I'm not a licensed physician in any of them. It's much more difficult often to prove irrational anti-Semitism because of the uh, different ways that it manifests, both as a, for example, a pro-communist ideology and a pro-capitalist ideology. Uh, it, it's, it's something that dwarfs in many different ways. One of the real difficulties, of course, of regulating speech is that unlike telephonic communication, which is monodirectional, the internet is polyvalent. You put it out from somewhere and it can take all sorts of different paths. You're not directing it as a phone call somewhere. So that all sorts of jurisdictional issues become raised. Where can you sue these people? If you have telephonic speech, and I'm particularly trying to communicate, say, intimidation to an individual, I call that individual, I communicate to that individual. I have picked up my phone, I have dialed the number. The difficulty of regulating the internet particularly is its polyvalent and multi-architectural design. It has hyperlinks, and you can stick those hyperlinks. Did I put those hyperlinks in there? Am I responsible for those hyperlinks if I have not written the web page to which those hyperlinks are directed? And by the way, where is it that one would have jurisdiction? In what court could I sue? Is it in the place where I transmit the, the discussion? Is it in the place that receives the discussion? Or is it somewhere else? Is it where the uh, internet service provider, the ISP server, is located? And so the, these are jurisdictional issues that are really quite difficult. And while we're trying to decide this, the, the, the um, amazingness of the human intellect in its ability to, in its capacity to develop intellectually is creating all sorts of incredibly useful technology like YouTube and MySpace and all forms of blogs and Facebook, which are incredible media for those of us who are interested in uh, expressions from, from the left to the right to the middle, from musical to artistic to sophisticated intellectual to entertaining from children's materials to, to things that are interesting to the elderly. And yet, terrorists and anti-Semitism are using these spaces. Nidal Hassan, we know the uh, person who was responsible for the murder at Fort Hood, we know that he was influenced primarily by 
uh, Anwar al-Waki. And yet, you can find Awaki's sermons right on the YouTube. Just look up his name, you, his name on YouTube. You can listen to what he teaches. We know that he gave, uh, uh, we know that he gave permission to murder U.S. troops. We know that because uh, the major actually specified that he was influenced by this person, and yet YouTube is carrying his messages. After 9/11, there was a tremendous amount of interbreeding or intercommunication between white supremacists in this country who blame Jews for 9-11 and Islamic uh, extreme, extremist groups. They found common ground in anti-Semitism and they found a way of sharing information that could never be shared in any other way. It used to be that if you were a hate group, you had a very difficult time in the United States to get any of these messages out. They're fringes. Racism, yes. Racism is an unfortunately horrible phenomenon throughout the United States culture. Anti-Semitism, while certainly a major problem in the United States history, this is just to give an example, the frame case in the early part of the 20th century is less pronounced, less endemic to the culture as a whole. And so you could put out pamphlets, but now, if you know how to manipulate Google, you could put out the most anti-Semitic materials as the, one of the top Google hits. And so your little fringe information as a white supremacist group, which could have virtually no influence because the lies, the deceptions, the superstitions you would tell would reach almost nobody. And now have a means of being one of the top things that someone, a school child in high school, a school child in, uh, in elementary school, and the unfortunate thing is that academics, even who, who uh, find it simpler to look deeply into the archives, deeply into and research deeply will use Google indiscriminately. And these sorts of things, as well as other things like Wikipedia, are easy to be deceived by. What, what are the numbers? Well, in 1995, um, there were 50 web pages promoting hatred. 1999, 800. 2001, 4,000, with 2,500 of the, of the 4,000 being based in the United States. In 2006, there were 6,008. Uh, hate sites, 2007, 7,000 hate sites, now 2010, 11,500. It is a major, major cancer. And now these are just sites. If you go onto YouTube, you can watch Hitler, you can watch uh, uh, all manner of Russian uh, xenophobia, xenophobia and anti-Semitism, and you can read the comments, and the comments will tell you, beat the Jews and save Russia. And you can, and so people can interact. We know Jihad Jane used YouTube as a means of recruitment for terrorist activity, and yet the, yeah, YouTube claims it has a policy to take this matter down, and I believe it actually tries to do so. I believe it, it, it does so in good conscience. The question is what to do with situations where it just simply can't, because so much material is being put out, out there. International norms of uh, free speech uh, are uh, less, much less controversial about the regulation of hate speech than it is in the United States. In all countries, there's a balance of interest. Speech against copyright, speech against identity, they're, they're all rights, right? But in, in the US, the tendency is to balance more on the, uh, on the speech side. But in, in the international context, since the United Nations Convention Against Genocide and the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racism, it's been accepted that you can regulate anti-Semitic speech, hate speech in general, although those conventions really were raised because the world saw 
with the force of Nazi propaganda, which of course propagated in Germany in the late 19th century and the early 20th century and had almost no effect till a very charismatic leader was able to harness it and direct it in various ways to commit uh, violent crimes. In Europe, the Council of Europe has adopted the Convention of Cybercrime. There are 34 or 51 members of the uh, Council of Europe who have signed on to it. 15 countries after it actually ratified that convention, and it allows for the regulation of hate speech on the internet. So Europe is moving in the direction of, of recognizing that hate speech is not so unique that it cannot be regulated when it can elsewhere. Let me just very briefly talk about the influence of hate speech. Anti-Semitism, like a, a racial animus, uh, uh, manifests in can be manifest in institutionalized injustice. In times of distress, disparaging attitudes about Jews and other minorities can mature into full-blown injustice. The repeated expressive delegitimization of Jews and other outgroups uh, can develop a foundation for discriminatory laws. Bigotry is not cathartic, right? One of the arguments about the allowing more anti-Semitic speech is to just talk back to it. Explain to them that Jews do not use blood and matzah. Just explain to them what Passover is. But it, it, let them express it themselves. It's cathartic for them. If you close it, if you close things up, then they, it will blow up. It'll be like a pressure valve. But the history teaches that in reality, the teaching of it is not enough. It breeds, it wants to, it's inflammatory. Um, and so placing speech at the level of discourse legitimizes it. It's to say it's like any other speech. Hate groups pose a threat, though not always an immediate threat, to representative democracy. The extent to which dialogue furthers equality is more telling of the First Amendment value than is compelling marketplace in which the most powerful forces are always allowed to win. The sort of social Darwinian thought of the most powerful thought of you should be able to win. But what if that social Darwinian view allows in the Weimar Republic for a, uh, for a large percentage of the population to, to have the National Socialists. And no, Hitler never got the majority. After all, the Christian Democratic Party was anti-Semitic as, well, as well. And when you combine all the numbers of all the anti-Semitic parties in Germany, you get well above 50%. Um, violent hate speech not only advocates anti-democratic values, it is an intrinsic part of an overall scheme to overthrow democratic institution by attacking cultural diversity and inciting acts of destruction. Thus, hate speech on the internet which is disseminated by groups or individuals through the medium capable of distributing electronic messages anywhere in the world represents a worldwide assault on outgroup safety and because anti-Semitism is so widespread and so cross-border, particularly a threat to Jews because they wind up being scapegoats where they live and where they don't live. Uh, with the ever-increasing number of, of uh, hate groups running internet sites, the government I argue, and this is probably the most controversial part of my, my, my talk, that the government must act. So in trying to find solutions, the government must, must act. I will tell you the counter-argument immediately, even before I give you my argument. The biggest counter-argument is that you can't stop everybody, that if you try to stop some, you will so, so simply incite others. You will not allow people to speak, and therefore you will not allow the counter-speak to come in. And, uh, and the government should not regulate speech. It should not be in a position where it's determining what people should say. 
Um, uh, so for, uh, uh, before I, let me uh, just pause a little bit before I move on to that and speak a little, just a little bit more on the concept uh, on what the internet is and whether it's regulated. Well, some people can be regulated. Some people will say it cannot be regulated. It's not here. It's not there. It's somewhere in this ethereal world of the internet. It is, in fact, a very physical, uh, physical um, uh, method of had a very physical method of distribution. Machines send out uh, requests for data. They send out packets, which are physical electromagnetic signals requesting information. They get electromagnetic signals from somewhere else, which is comparable to telephonic communication, which goes over wires. Each computer has an internet protocol, that is to say it has a specific address. And in transmitting a bit of information, the ISP server, the internet service protocol provider, can determine both where the message came from, it can determine the IP address of the computer it came from, and it can determine the IP address of the computer where it was sent. And therefore, you can in fact determine certain elements of for jurisdictional purposes. The purveyors of hate can use message boards and websites to recruit and retain members. Because a guy sitting in his living room can, can now look at information that maybe he or she might have had shame to look at in public, might have had, just as the Ku Klux Klan could present its ideas very more easily with a hood on, it's much more easily easy to sit in one's living room and in the comfort of one's bedroom and communicate. Um, uh, in, uh, in the United States, as I said, there's limits to this, but in, in Canada, for example, just to give one example, there are now laws that prohibit the dissemination of speech that's uh, hateful, that is, they, it's not specifically only anti-Semitic, but directed at outgroups, and this uh, allowed for the extradition of Ernst Zundel to Germany, uh, because even though the communication was not occurring from from Canada, Zundel was there, and the extradition treaty between Germany and Canada was sufficient enough that his Holocaust denial could, uh, triggered the extradition and could get Zundel to Germany where he was convicted. And by the way, he was even not even a citizen of Canada, he was a citizen of Australia. And not only that, but to just add another piece of the puzzle to identify the uh, jurisdictional issues can be solved. His information, the, the bits that he was sending of Holocaust denial, were on a foreign server. They were not even on a Canadian server. Italy also recognizes criminal jurisdiction when any part of an offense takes, takes place on its territory. That is to say, whether the hate message is received on its territory or is transmitted on its, uh, from its territory. It will take jurisdiction in, and uh, prosecution against hate laws. Uh, in France, there was a case where Yahoo, which was not the purveyor of Nazi, which was not selling Nazi paraphernalia, allowed for people to do searches for Nazi paraphernalia in France, which is an illegal activity there. And the court found Yahoo liable because Yahoo, well, said that they would find Yahoo liable if Yahoo did not create the necessary technology to prohibit the uh, sale of Nazi paraphernalia on its site. Yahoo said, we can't do this technology. Technology doesn't exist. The court said, "I will find. We will find you every single day if you don't." And all of a sudden, Yahoo came up with a technological solution that prevents <laughs> any sort of uh, Nazi paraphernalia from being transmitted through its Yahoo search engine. Uh, in the United Kingdom, 
there, the language, uh, there's a standard that uh, uh, prohibits the incitement of hatred on the internet for a variety of reasons, racial, color, ethnic, national, or sexual orientation, and that can reasonably stir racial hatred. So this is a dignitary crime, where in the United States, you can only really place limits based on incitement to uh, violence, based on a recent case about cross burning. Uh, the other interesting standard in Great Britain, which is something that is a modern trend and has exists in few countries, it is it actually requires ISP servers, the internet service providers, neutral parties, not the people who are transmitting the information, not the people who are requesting the information. They're simply, it's sort of like a relay station uh, of a telephone transmission that it requires them to report any anti-Semitic and otherwise hateful speech that's possible. So in conclusion, uh, the laws are not the complete solution. And we will not be able to stop all, all anti-Semitic and hate speech on the internet. But murder laws are not the solution to all murder, because you can't stop all murderers. You can't even find them all. And neither are copyright laws. The idea that you can't stop one anti-Semitic transmission just because others will spring up is sort of like saying you can't stop one copyright violation of Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola with an O at the end, because someone else will pick up that some, some falsity in the future. They, they go, these laws go some way, and if the European countries were to enforce them and maintain them, even uh, transmissions from the U.S. could be limited in that way. Thank you, Alex. Next, but first, I, I want to thank Ken Marcus for inviting me to be on the panel, and, and also thank him for uh, his gracious introduction before mentioning my my book. And I, I do want to give credit where credit's due. There, my first book was on the history of the separation of church and state, uh, and the title was "Please Don't Wish Wish Me a Merry Christmas," but. That was originally my my uh, subtitle, and it was the editor at NYU Press who said, "Gee, that's really catchy. Let's use that as as the title. We'll sell a lot more books. Uh, I don't know if it sold any more books. Uh, and I certainly, you know, I thought he knows. You know, I should defer to him. He's, he's in the book selling business. Uh, seemed like a good idea. And you know, he probably was right. But what I did learn after that was that some people never get past the title." Right, so uh, I got all sorts of responses as if the entire book were about Christmas. And I get to like calling me saying, gee, I hear you're against the commercialization of Christmas. Like, it's got nothing to do with the book. <laughs> so anyway, after that, I always use very descriptive titles with uh, uh, straightforward as possible. And then I I'm not talking about separation of church and state now. I'm going to talk about uh, anti-Semitism politics of uh, free speech jurisprudence. More specifically, uh, I will address two questions that I think are related. The first is whether anti-Zionism is a type of hate speech, or more specifically, anti-Semitic hate speech. And then second, from the standpoint of American constitutional law, is hate speech, including anti-Semitic hate speech, constitutionally protected under the First Amendment. My thesis is that both of these questions are inherently political, and as such, they cannot be answered definitively. That does not mean that we cannot rationally 
discuss or debate answers to these questions, but rather that we can never arrive at a non-controversial conclusion because one's answers will necessarily reflect or manifest one's interest and values, including religious and cultural values. I'm going to start with uh, the second question first, so the question of First Amendment protections. And in fact, most of my presentation will focus on, on that question. And then at the end, I'll come back to, to uh, the first question. And in discussing First Amendment protections, my focus will be on the politics of free expression rather than the legal doctrine involving free expression. So I'll discuss just a few United States Supreme Court decisions to illustrate an important point. Although many constitutional scholars deem free speech to be a constitutional lodestar, or what some, some people call the first freedom, the Supreme Court has rarely resolved free expression issues contrary to mainstream interests or values. The corollary to this point is that political and cultural outsiders or minorities often suffer at the hands of the court, including in cases that appear to be great victories for free expression. In many cases, upholding First Amendment rights involve situations where the protected expression actually attacks or injures outsiders or minorities. To, to illustrate this point initially, I'll, I'll start with two hostile audience cases. A hostile audience case arises when an individual is speaking to a group of people who begin to get upset and to threaten possible violence. So the speaker's going along, blah, 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 blah. The crowd starts to murmur, murmur, murmur. Maybe some people start to push and shove. Somebody yells, you better shut up. What happens in that situation? Well, sometimes the police come in and arrest the speaker. And the question that arises then is whether the speaker's expression is constitutionally protected, even though it might generate violence, albeit often directed against the speaker. Now, the first case uh, focusing on this, this type of situation is Terminello versus Chicago. It's decided in 1949. In that case, the Supreme Court concluded that a defendant's conviction under a disorderly conduct ordinance violated the First Amendment. So in other words, the court found that the speech was protected under the First Amendment. The speaker was a Catholic priest. So in the context of the United States in the 1940s, it's possible to look at this case and conclude that it involves uh, the protection of a religious outsider. Uh, but the priest's speech was an anti-Semitic diatribe. Uh, he condemned, quote, atheistic, communistic, Jewish, or Zionist Jews. He claimed that Jewish doctors had performed atrocities on Germans. Uh, he asked, quote, do you wonder that they were persecuted in other countries? And then he proclaimed that, quote, we want them to go back where they came from. Uh, the American Jewish Congress filed an amicus brief in the case, and they, they emphasized that uh, this type of speech, this type of anti-Semitic hate speech, posed a frightening threat to Jews 
particularly coming so soon after the Holocaust. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court found that this speech was protected. Now, the next case comes up just two years later. It's 1951, Feiner versus New York. It's another hostile speech situation. But this time, the court concludes that the speech is unprotected. The defendant uh, there was Feiner, was a, a uh, college student who was addressing a group of 75 to 80 persons, a racially mixed crowd. So uh, we have whites and blacks together on a sidewalk in Syracuse, New York. Feiner encouraged his audience to attend a Young Progressives of America meeting. Uh, he criticized the city for canceling a permit for an earlier meeting, and he made some derogatory remarks about the president, the mayor of Syracuse, and the American Legion. The court held that this speech was outside of First Amendment protections and therefore punishable, because according to the court, it created a clear and present danger, even though the evidence wrongly suggested otherwise. In particular, the court seemed especially worried that Feiner had urged African Americans to, quote, rise up in arms and fight for equal rights. But witnesses had sworn that Feiner had instead encouraged his listeners to, quote, rise up and fight for their rights by going on and on to the Young Progressives meeting, black and white alike. So comparing these two, two cases, in the first hostile audience case, Terminello, the court protected inflammatory anti-Semitic hate speech. While in the second case, Feiner, the court allowed the punishment of speech mostly criticizing public officials and encouraging African Americans to take political action. So what's, what's my point here? Well, I'm not arguing that the court or the justices purposefully discriminated against outsiders or minorities, but rather that the convergence or lack of convergence of interest between outsiders and the mainstream can influence the court's decisions. And this is, this is what Derek Bell has called the interest convergence thesis. Uh, so in accord with the interest convergence thesis, the results in Terminello and Feiner suggest that the court is most likely to emphasize the principal protection of free expression when the speech or writing attacks or injures outsiders or minorities rather than the American mainstream. So in Terminello, the court finds anti-Semitic hate speech to be constitutionally protected. While in Feiner, the court finds speech that's threatening to mainstream and elites to be unprotected. Now another case, uh, more of a landmark free speech case, illustrates this, this same point, really hammers it home. The, the case is Brandenburg, Brandenburg versus Ohio, decided in 1969. Uh, in that case, the court articulated its most speech-protective standard ever for determining whether subversive advocacy can be punished, or more generally, speech inciting unlawful conduct. Uh, the, the court, this is really one of the most important free speech cases uh, uh, in the canon, but it's important to remember that the defendant there was a Ku Klux Klan leader who had spouted typical hate speech repeatedly denouncing blacks and Jews. Another landmark free speech case underscores how the court 
does tend to protect the expression of outsiders and minorities when doing so corresponds with or converges with the interest of, of uh, the mainstream. Uh, that case is New York Times versus Sullivan from 1964. The New York Times had published a full-page advertisement soliciting support for the civil rights movement. Uh, the advertisement, though, contained several minor factual errors. For instance, it said that students in Montgomery, Alabama had sung uh, uh, My Country Tis of Thee on the state capitol steps, but in reality they had sung the national anthem. Uh, because the advertisement also criticized police reactions to civil rights protests, the police commissioner, that was Sullivan, brought a civil action in the state courts for defamation against the Times and several civil rights leaders who had signed on to the advertisement. In the state courts, Sullivan, the police commissioner, won. In fact, the state's highest court upheld a jury award of a half a million dollars. A unanimous U.S. Supreme Court, however, reversed and issued one of its most vigorous defenses of free expression. The court articulated its highly speech-protective actual malice standard, <coughs> determining when a public official can recover damages in a civil suit against the press. So the Sullivan case enunciated a strong conception of a free press, and the press, of course, celebrated this decision. But as others, and I'm thinking especially here of the legal historian Lucas Poe, uh, as, as others have emphasized, the Sullivan case was, quote, a race case first and foremost. It not only protected the expression of black civil rights leaders, but also assured that the news media, like uh, the New York Times, could continue to report on the atrocities inflicted on civil rights activists in the South. In fact, the, the court's protection of civil rights leaders and the press went hand in hand, uh, not just in this case. Uh, news reporting, particularly on television, had helped nurture a national political coalition pushing for civil rights reform. This, this coalition had begun developing in the 1950s and it really reached its apex of power in the mid-1960s. Uh, as demonstrated by Congress's passage of the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964. So the Sullivan case did not show the court boldly and boldly protecting the rights of minorities despite the political fallout. To the contrary, the, the, the case manifested the court's compliance with a dominant national political coalition at its maximum power at that time. So the key conclusion here is that the determination of the scope of First Amendment protections is integrally political. Cases are decided in accordance with the interests and values at stake. And I want to be clear that, to me, this is not a corruption of the adjudicative process. Rather, this merely describes the inherent political nature of constitutional interpretation and adjudication. This is just the way it is. Now, let me briefly uh, focus on hate speech per se. The, the court has decided a number of cases uh, involving the criminal punishment of, of hate speech, but the court has not 
clearly determine whether hate speech is a type of low-value speech outside of First Amendment protections. Although the, the court does seem to be leaning in the direction of finding that hate speech is constitutionally protected within the scope of, of the First Amendment. And if hate speech is constitutionally protected, then of course the government cannot constitutionally punish it. But what should be obvious by this point is that the judicial determination of whether hate speech is or is not protected in any particular case will be largely influenced by the interest and values that are at stake. Or in other words, the constitutional protection of hate speech is a political issue. Now let me get back to my, my first question. Is anti-Zionist expression a type of hate speech, specifically anti-Semitic hate speech? Well, I think most people seem to agree that one can criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. So, for example, one might argue that Israel's policy on new settlements is incorrect, and that argument is not necessarily anti-Semitic. It might focus on the justice or the politics of, of settlements. At the same time, it also seems uh, that most people would agree that many anti-Israel arguments are blatantly anti-Semitic. And for example, I will draw on Ken's writings. Uh, Ken has described a situation uh, at the University of California at Irvine. Uh, he wrote that at UC Irvine, quote, pro-Israel Jewish students have been subject to stalking, rock throwing, and various forms of intimidation, and a Holocaust memorial was damaged or destroyed. Signs have been posted on campus showing their star of David dripping with blood. And he kind of goes on to elaborate the situation. But as he also points out there, um, some people would deny that even those types of actions in speech are, are anti-Semitic. Well, I'd like to bring out the broader point here, though, is that we can think of, of these arguments as being along a continuum. So at one end of the continuum, we have arguments that we might say are critical of Israel, but are clearly not anti-Semitic. At the other end, we have arguments that are critical of Israel, but also clearly anti-Semitic. But in the middle, there are many, many arguments which people would disagree about. You know, they might be anti-Semitic, they might not be. Uh, it's hard to determine. So how then does this question, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitic. How does this question relate to my other question uh, related to First Amendment protection, including First Amendment protection of hate speech? Well, if even the legal question of whether particular speech is protected under the First Amendment is necessarily political, then to me it's obvious that the definition of anti-Zionist speech as being either anti-Semitic or not, will also necessarily be political. In other words, the question, the question whether somebody who criticizes Israel is simultaneously condemning Jews as a race or religion is an inherently political problem. The answer that one gives to the question will be strongly influenced by one's interest and values vis-a-vis -vis Israel and Judaism. So an important point here is that when critics of Israel 
insist that their arguments are merely political and not anti-Semitic, they are often begging the question. Because whether anti-Zionism is political or is instead anti-Semitic is itself a political question. Now let me clarify this point because I think it's something of a, a logical conundrum. Many commentators see a dichotomy, an either-or. Criticisms of Israel are deemed either political, which is considered legitimate, or anti-Semitic, which is considered illegitimate. But my point is that this dichotomy, this distinction between political anti-Zionist arguments on the one hand and anti-Semitic or hate speech anti-Zionist arguments on the other hand is too slippery to resolve these disputes definitively. It's too slippery because the distinction itself is political. We cannot determine whether anti-Zionism is merely political or is instead hate speech without accounting for one's interests and values, particularly in relation to Israel. Okay, let me just make a couple of quick conclusions. If both the questions I raised at the outset, um, is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitic hate speech, and is uh, anti-Semitic hate speech constitutionally protected, both of those questions lead to inherently political answers than what, what follows. Well, first, I'd say we must guard against having expectations for law that are too great. Uh, the law or legal doctrine cannot eliminate anti-Semitism, it cannot prevent people from making anti-Zionist arguments that are sometimes uh, anti-Semitic, partly because the law itself cannot be separated or divorced from the underlying political battles regarding Israel and Zionism. So if anti-Semitism spreads through society, we cannot expect the law to save us. Nonetheless, and this is my second point, I do not mean that we should therefore disregard the law. Uh, the law or the interpretation of the law is inherently political, um, uh, but nonetheless, the law itself influences politics. It's sort of a dialectical relationship between law and politics. So, while I've been discussing constitutional law, we can also think about statutory law. Maybe we can have statutes that help control uh, anti-Semitism or control the effects, detrimental effects of anti-Semitism. And even within constitutional law, it's important to make distinctions. So uh, there's a difference between the application of the First Amendment to governmental actors and non-governmental or private actors. So. Uh, the First Amendment limits apply to governmental actors, but not to private actors. If we have two universities with a hate speech problem, and one is a state-supported university, if it wants to promulgate an anti-hate speech code, that public support, publicly supported university might run into First Amendment problems. But if we have a private university that wants to have an anti-hate speech code, presumably it could do so without worrying about running aground of the First Amendment. Ultimately, I'd say it's obvious we need to find ways to stop the spread of anti-Semitism. War might be one way to help, but it, it certainly cannot be the only way. We need to think about other methods. Thank you very much.
Next we'll hear from Professor Kenneth Lassen, uh, whose paper will be on theoretical basis, historical antecedents, contemporary manifestations, and legal dimensions of modern campus anti-Semitism. Thank you. Uh, well, that's, that's quite the title. I, I suppose I should really change my, uh, the title of my talk to uh, Echoes of Ruth Weiss. Uh, and I think you're going you're gonna to hear some of those in what I have to say. Um, let me begin by briefly belaboring the obvious. I'm afraid the universities um, uh, today, which like to perceive themselves as uh, uh, places of culture in a chaotic world, as uh, uh, places where um, learned professors roam the quadrangles thinking higher thoughts, are not uh, quite that wonderful. Uh, although not all of them are, uh, are hotbeds of radical turmoil, a disturbing number of them, it seems to me, have come to be focal points of loud and strident uh, opposition to the state of Israel. Uh, in fact, the volume of overt anti-Semitic acts has declined over the past few years, but there's been a significant increase, as we all know, of um, anti-Zionist rhetoric and activity on campuses uh, both uh, in the United States and around the world. And although the two concepts are, of course, um, uh, not always identical, it seems to me, again, that in today's world, they're uh, conflict. Uh, as uh, Alex Setsis, I think, correctly points out, words matter. Uh, they can cause damage, uh, injury, uh, hurt. Uh, they have consequences. While the First Amendment uh, broadly protects freedom of speech, um, the Constitution, as we all know, uh, has its limits. Defamation is uh, punishable, for example, as a speech that incites the violence. <clears throat> as always, the problem with regulating hate speech is where to draw the line, just as um, an academic institution should not allow itself to become a um, uh, forum for bigotry uh, neither should freedom of expression be limited. I think it's, uh, we all would agree, or most of us would agree, that it's better to err on the side of liberty, and excess of tolerance is uh, still preferable to censorship. Uh, in the context of anti-Semitism, however, the quest for balance raises problems of its own. For example, must Holocaust studies be balanced by uh, Holocaust uh, denial points, or points made by Holocaust denial? deniers. Does the obligation towards balance cover every point taught in every course or only uh, major disputes? Who is to enforce uh, whatever we consider to be the, uh, the norm? Um, Anti-Semitism is not just name-calling. It's something much more corrosive. Responses to hate speech or disruptive behavior must be firm. They must be immediate and they must be, it seems to me, consequential. To put it in non-academic terms, as much as those who spout anti-Semitic rhetoric are in our faces, we must be in theirs. In this regard, I, uh, of course, draw strength from people like Ruth Weiss and Earl Cutler uh, and uh, the editors of the, uh, of the, the new journal, uh, Journal for the Study of uh, Anti-Semitism, and um, the founders of Scholars for, uh, uh, for Peace in the Middle East, and uh, people like that, um, uh, it seems to be those are, those are the ones who, uh, who have it right. Uh, not just attending uh, conferences, uh, but, uh, but of actually trying to do something about uh, 
anti-Semitism. I've just completed a law review article on anti-Semitism in the academic voice, which examines the relationship between anti-Semites um, and uh, anti-Zionists and speech of both of both such groups on their conduct, how they both play out on uh, contemporary university campuses. And I suggest ways uh, that, uh, by which such rhetoric and conduct can be constitutionally confronted. Um, I, uh, I look at the um, historic, historical backdrop, examining the, uh, the seeds of Marxism, the use of big lies as opposed to facts, and the uh, so-called occupation of, uh, in modern Israel. Then I present statistics and narratives, uh, case histories, if you will, about what goes on uh, with academic boycotts, with Holocaust denial, the old canards about uh, Israel being an apartheid state, uh, modern, uh, 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 modern day uh, uh, naysayers uh, such as Israeli academics themselves, some Israeli academics. And uh, I try, um, uh, as we all do, to counter exaggerations and revisionist history with facts that I believe, I firmly believe, are difficult to deny. Uh, and finally, I suggest uh, responses and remedies that are consonant with the principles embodied by and ennobled by our First Amendment. The problem is, as I have likewise pointed out in the Law Review article, uh, nobody reads Law Review articles. And even fewer, uh, those, who do, those who do read Law Review articles are seldom persuaded by them. Um, thus the importance, I think, of conferences like this, uh, where although uh, uh, in large part, we're preaching to the converted. We are, I think, at hope, uh, much more visible. Um, I can't forbear from uh, adding a thought that uh, that many uh, share about such um, such conferences as, as this one, uh, including, I must say, my wife and daughter. I was talking to a few people at lunch about this, uh, who uh, questioned. Uh, they were, I guess, impressed with the fact that I was coming and speaking at Yale with all these important people. Uh, but they said, um, uh, what good is it going to do? Uh, uh, Anti-Semitism has been around for a long time. My daughter, who lives in Israel, uh, immediately cited an old rabbinic uh, 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 teaching that um, uh, Esau hated uh, um, his brother and, uh, and their, their descendants always will. Uh, Esau's descendants always will hate the Jews. And what are we going to do about it? The, uh, when I asked her, well, what would you do about it? She says, well, I'm doing it. I'm living in Israel, and I think we have to kind of uh, circle the wagons and, uh, and uh, batten down the hatches, as she put it, and, and fight them on our own turf and fight them to the death if necessary. Um, well, uh, it seems to me that uh, uh, our, our task is not just to combat anti-Semitism, but hopelessness as well. And uh, I guess, although my daughter and I get along uh, pretty well and uh, we're, we're close, I guess I differ with her in this res respect. I think we've, uh, we've largely done, or we're capable of doing this in America, especially in America. We have done in the past, she put it out well, in the past we've had anti-Semitism and it's waned and then it's waxed again and, uh, and it, it'll come up again. Uh, but it seems to me we'll, uh, we'll do it in the future and as Ruth Weiss, I think, also correctly points out, uh, what are we going to do? We're just going to sit back and take it? No, we're going to fight it. And we have to fight it uh, by educating our, uh, our students and the, the newer generations coming up 
uh, as to as to um, what exactly we're facing. Um, I'm shocked by the number of law students I have uh, in my uh, my classes who uh, who were relatively ignorant of the Holocaust, of anti-Semitism in general, of uh, the history of Israel, the background of Zionism. Uh, and these are these people, of course, are they're smart. They've uh, they've uh, um, sur they've survived a pretty competitive market to get into law school, uh, and uh, yet they're they're ignorant of uh, some what we would consider to be um, uh, basic tenets of history. Uh, well, with all that uh, uh, prelude in mind, let me try to give you a very brief synopsis of my uh, current article, and uh, trust that as I do, uh, I might add something to the discussion. First, the theoretic, theoretical and historical backdrop. Anti-Semitism in the academy is not a new phenomenon. Much of it can be traced to Karl Marx, whose essay on the Jewish question was an early um, reflection of modern leftist thoughts. So I'm reading this. Uh, he said, what is the he asked, what is the profane basis of Judaism? And he answered, practical need, self-interest. What is, Marx asked further, uh, what is the worldly cult of the Jew? Huckstery. What is his worldly goal? Money. His worldly God, money. Very well, uh, he said. Then, in emancipating itself from huckstery and money, and thus from real and practical Judaism, our age would, emanci would emancipate itself. The emancipation of the Jew is the emancipation of mankind from Judaism, unquote. Well, Marx was a classic anti-Semite, uh, not an academic anti-Semite, not unlike those who fabricated uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion, uh, which, as we've uh, learned, and we probably all knew beforehand, is still very prevalent around the world. Uh, and of course, they view civilization as having been uh, or uh, about to be destroyed by Jewish conspiracies. In other words, let the world be rid of the Jews, and uh, uh, that's the message, and uh, all will be well. Uh, but Marxism was not the only Marxism was not the only um, uh, early antecedent to modern Jewish uh, anti-Semitism uh, and modern anti-Semitism. Much academic scholarship in Germany during the Third Reich served to legitimize and endorse the Nazis' worldview. Um, through it all, ample use was made of the big lie uh, in the best tradition of which propaganda is promulgated as fact. And the evolution of such bigotry continues unabated on today's campuses. Uh, so today we have repeated assertions by academics that Israel is the primary stumbling block to achieving a two-state solution or a nuclear power that presents the greatest strength, greatest threat to peace and stability in the, uh, in the Middle East is Israel. Or Israel is an apartheid state deserving of international boycotts, and so on and so forth. And trumpeting those claims uh, loudly and often enough uh, has allowed them to take on the character of uh, unassailable truths, at least in their speaker's mind. Uh, were they subjected, in my mind, to the same objective scrutiny that academic historians and political scientists traditionally require of their disciplines, all of them would likely prove meritless. Um, it's become increasingly difficult to separate, as I suggest, uh, anti-Semitism from uh, anti-Zionism. Uh, just a few examples is, uh, in, uh, of many. In January 2009 at San Francisco State University, reacting to um, 
uh, anti-Hamas, uh, anti-terror uh, uh, petitions that were uh, put out by some uh, pro-Israeli uh, students. A group called the General Union of Palestinian Students assaulted um, uh, those people who had put out the petition and accused them of creating a hostile environment on campus. This is what from the same uh, group that, uh, that routinely sponsors radical speakers with, uh, uh, who uh, demonize Jews, Zionists, Israel, and of course America. Earlier this year, uh, Ambassador Oren uh, from Israel was uh, shouted down at uh, University of California at Irvine in a very orchestrated um, uh, demonstration, a campaign. Uh, one by one, people in the audience, uh, Palestinian students, got up and called him uh, by racist names. And one by one, they were escorted out. They had planned this, three minutes apart. And the overall effect was that, uh, that uh, he had to stop speaking, uh, much to the embarrassment of the organizers of the event. Uh, how do you handle something like that? Well, similar uh, instances There was the occur. Muslim Student Union. I'm no, sorry? That wasn't necessarily Palestinians. That was the Muslim Student Union. The Muslim Student Union. Union. I'm yeah. sorry, but uh, there are many Palestinian students in that. Yeah. It was voted down by people who were educated uh, as to what was going on. Uh, nevertheless, over 700 academics signed on to that original petition. Most of them British, but a considerable number of them scholars who hailed from uh, a host of other European countries as well. In 2009, just a year ago, uh, following Israel's military campaign in uh, Gaza, um, in response to, uh, to uh, six years of rocket fire uh, from Gaza into Israel, a group of American professors, I'm uh, ashamed to say, joined the call for an academic boycott of Israel recommending divestment initiatives modeled after those used against apartheid South Africa. Uh, more than a few campuses uh, celebrate what they call Israel Apartheid Week. Uh, that event has been, uh, has been held every year since 2006. And of course it likens uh, Israel to segregated South Africa. Well, as Martin Luther King said shortly before he was assassinated, uh, quote, when people criticize Zionists, they mean Jews. You're talking anti-Semitism, unquote. What would Reverend King have uh, said about the comparisons made between modern Israel and apartheid South Africa of the late 20th century? Um, of course, we have Holocaust denial as a, as a big part of uh, uh, a new form of anti-Semitism, but there's no, nothing else you can call it but uh, anti-Semitism, it seems to me. Uh, the deniers um, uh, claim that they are seeking to uh, be, be, uh, behind what they uh, what uh, they term as the, uh, uh, the the largest hoax of the 20th century, uh, and uh, then you have people, academics like uh, uh, MIT MIT's Noam Chomsky and uh, lesser lights like uh, Norman Finkelstein, uh, making uh, similar statements that the Holocaust is grossly exaggerated. Chomsky, for one, embraced. Um, uh, Sheikh uh, Nasrallah, who of course uh, is one of the, uh, those people. There's many imams who uh, uh, refer to Jews as grandsons of apes and pigs. And Chomsky refers to the United States as one of the leading terrorist states. Well, how do you combat something like that? Um, there are uh, legal remedies to, uh, to, do, uh, to do this. I think Alex, uh, Alex uh, has pointed some of those out. Um, and, uh, and I try to point some of those out, uh, but I think that the, uh, the best um, uh, 
the, the best remedy for some for uh, handling anti-Semitism on campus and anti-Zionism uh, uh, on campus is direct confrontation. That's still the best remedy. Um, even better than it seems to me the attempts at legislative remedies. So uh, I'll conclude by uh, where I started. Um, uh, it is the obligation of all academics either to recognize or refute claims that have no basis in fact, um, or to uh, uh, no basis in fact or logic, uh, and not to ignore them. Not only can offensive speech and conduct be constitutionally confronted, confronted and condemned, but responsible responsible administrators and faculty uh, and students have a moral imperative to do that. We have a right to our views under the First Amendment. We have an obligation, it seems to me, under the First Amendment and uh, under principles of academic freedom and as moral Americans, uh, besides being uh, Jews, uh, to, um, to challenge those false assertions. Um, we should also not hesitate to point out the in inconsistencies in uh, the Koran uh, when it comes to tolerance and intolerance. Uh, we shouldn't hesitate to, as Ruth Weiss pointed out, and Fred Stevens pointed out, to point out the hypocrisies that take place on American campuses by uh, American professors who say that uh, that they side with the underdog. They're siding with the underdog with, uh, by siding with the uh, Palestinians. Uh, we shouldn't hesitate to contest the uh, the media, which seems to ignore things like. Um, bustling marketplaces in Gaza. I'm not saying there isn't poverty in, in Gaza. Of course, there's poverty in Gaza. There's poverty in Israel as well. Uh, but we seldom hear about new uh, shopping malls opening up in, in Gaza. Uh, we don't hear about the indoctrination, unless we attend conferences like this, of small children. To me, that's a crime against humanity, taking small children and uh, teaching them uh, the kind of hatred that, uh, that is endemic in the radical Islamic world. And I uh, don't want to let, it, let the moment pass without, uh, without taking the task modern feminists, who it seems to me largely ignore the uh, honor killings that go on around the world and are condoned by most countries in the world, most Islamic uh, regimes in the world. Uh, murder of, of women uh, and girls uh, for following Western ways, so to speak, and some very, uh, very other what we would consider to be innocent activities. You want to discipline them, discipline them in your own religion. But murder is something else. And uh, I don't want to hear that we've, as I've heard from members of my own academic community, well, what else is new? Why are you writing about something like the murderous marginalization of women in, in radical Islamic regimes when we all know that? Well, if you all know that, why aren't you protesting? So uh, we shouldn't also allow the press to get away in the world to get away with ignoring Gilad Shalit. Uh, I'm not saying free him in return for, uh, for prisoners. Uh, I'm saying demand that the Geneva Conventions be followed by signatories to the Geneva Conventions, that the Red Cross be allowed access to him. Demand that. Uh, and uh, so on and so forth. We can, all, we can all go on. I'm sure all of us uh, in our own ways we can go on and, and list the uh, outrageous things that go on um, in the, the name of, uh, of academic freedom. So thank you for your time.
were a number of um, common themes through the first three papers, and there's one that I want to point out now because I think it's a, it's a question for me as well. Uh, and it's the question, to what extent can law solve the problem of anti-Semitism? To what extent is it the appropriate, uh, the appropriate tool to, to look at? Um, and by my calculation, what we've gotten so far, I would say, I would calculate three chairs for the law. Uh, but maybe that's three chairs only in the sense that we've had three speakers and each one of them has maybe given one chair. Uh, we've, we've heard uh, Alex Sessis uh, say that uh, laws are not the complete solution to anti-Semitism. Uh, but then again, the law is not the complete solution to anything else, including murder, copyright violation, or, uh, but it's a, a, a solution with uh, perhaps some limitations. Uh, we have heard from um, uh, Steph Feldman uh, the admonition uh, that we should avoid great expectations uh, from, um, uh, uh, we should avoid expectations that are too great because of the interrelationship between law and politics. Uh, an interrelationship that plays out in anti-Semitism, but in so many other things as well. Um, and a, uh, an admonition, though, that does not tell us that we shouldn't use constitution or statutes to try to address the problem. And then we've heard from Kenneth Lassen, among other um, important points, uh, the notion, I think it's a great notion whether I understand it properly or whether I don't, uh, but the notion that we should be, uh, that we should try, quote, to combat not just anti-Semitism, uh, but hopelessness as well, uh, which I find very interesting because as I've spoken to students and faculty on college campuses about the use of civil rights laws to address anti-Semitism, it seems to me that the response that I get is not just based on the likelihood of their success, but also a comfort that they feel to the extent that they believe that their problems are recognized by the law, recognized by federal agencies, recognized by investigators, recognized by decisions, so on and so forth. Uh, and that in trying to uh, establish or enforce laws that deal with anti-Semitism, whether it's uh, on college campuses, uh, whether it's in new, new media or elsewhere, we're not just trying to prevail on individual cases, we're trying to change a culture and we're trying to uh, provide some, some level of hope. I'm going to address one specific context, uh, which we've heard somewhat from uh, both uh, Ken Lassen and also from uh, Steph Feldman, and that's the college campus context. The question of whether uh, U.S. civil rights laws can effectively address anti-Semitism. And I'm going to try to give it to you fairly briefly. I think um, uh, um, my uh, co-panelists uh, generously mentioned that I have a book coming out on this topic. Um, and uh, some of what I say draws, draws from it. Um, there are two, two particular uh, topics from it that I want to uh, summarize for you, one which I've been able to discuss before and one that I haven't. Uh, what I've been able to discuss before um, is the broad question under federal law whether Jews are protected, whether Jews are protected on college campuses by a federal law, it's called Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in federally funded education programs on the basis of race or national origin, but doesn't mention religion. The question is, if you harass a Jew on a college campus, is that covered or not? Okay, so that's the one question. Uh, and then I'm going to, uh, the other thing I'm going to do is to develop a little bit the uh, case that uh, Steph Feldman mentioned, which is the Irvine case, University of California at Irvine. 
um, and should try mostly to tell you things about it that you don't know. Okay, how many of you are somewhat familiar with uh, what happened at the University of California at, at Irvine? Okay, looks well, like it was on YouTube. People circulated it. Ah, okay. Uh, we uh, good. Thank you. You are talking. Okay, there are a lot of things that happened. I was what I'm talking about is a pattern of incidents over the course now of approximately ten years. Okay, and we've heard about one particular incident, the Michael Oren incident, which is what you're talking about. So if you've heard only about the uh, the way in which uh, Ambassador Oren was treated, you know of at least one incident. Uh, but there's actually been a pattern of incidents lasting over uh, approximately ten years, uh, and we've heard uh, some of the things uh, alleged uh, and actually recognized by the federal government. I have included uh, rock throwing, harassment, intimidation, destruction of the Holocaust Memorial, uh, lots of uh, vandalism of various sorts, various threats. Uh, some has been words like slaughter the Jews. Uh, some have been uh, physical behavior, stalking, lots of it. Lots of it over, over a period of time. Uh, the Office for Civil Rights of the Department of Education investigated. And I'll say that, that I, directed, I directed investigators to look into this. Uh, and, but it was towards the tail end. So what I'm going to describe for you is after I left. Uh, after I left, um, the extensive there, was a, there had been an extensive complaint filed by a Zionist organization of America. Uh, OCR looked at it for uh, many, many, many months. Uh, and ultimately, um, if you follow the case, what you think happened is that OCR investigators determined that uh, there was uh, no anti-Semitism there, or maybe if you look at it a little bit more closely, you say, well, they never actually said there was no anti-Semitism, but they said, well, parts of the uh, complaint were untimely, and parts weren't sufficiently based in the evidence, and there were other technicalities, and maybe we don't have jurisdiction, and for the most part, we won't really say whether there's anti-Semitism, but they, they dismissed the case, right? So it's gone. And if you look at it a little bit more closely than that, then you realize that it isn't even quite that neat. In fact, no part of the case is gone from the Office of Civil Rights. This is a case that's been pending now for six years. The part of it that was dismissed on a technicality remains under appeal within that same agency, the Office of Civil Rights. So none of it's been rejected by the agency as a whole. right? And other parts of, this, of the same case have never been decided by the agency. Right? Um, so the whole thing is still pending six years after the fact within within the agency. If you look very closely at what's going on, uh, that's, what you, that's, that's what you know. Uh, and you've probably seen the various uh, victory dances that uh, Irvine officials have been, have been doing. Uh, you might have read various quotations from the chancellor, from the dean of the law school, talking about how there was a full investigation and they were, uh, they were fully acquitted. Right? That's, probably the, that's probably the story that you've read if you looked at it very closely and you've read the, the media accounts and some of the academic accounts. You also heard that the Muslim Association was ah, yes. suspended, suspended, year. And suspended that's for right. a year. And yeah. then after the civil rights investigation, there was this, or there was the, uh, there was the incident in which Ambassador uh, Oren was essentially prevented from speaking by a group of uh, Muslim students, uh, the uh, Muslim Students Association, and they were suspended uh, for uh, a year or a minimum of a year, something something like that. Uh, under a case which is still apparently being reviewed within the uh, Irvine, but that the basis, as I understand it, was not violation of Jewish students, it was not anti-Semitism, it was that the Muslim Student Association gave a misleading account of what they had done. Right? So even there, it was not as if uh, anti-Semitism was a reason for any action taken against anybody ever, although it may be that that backdrop was on the minds of the I think student services administrator did this, right? Uh, let me tell you a couple of things that, uh, that you may not know. 
Okay, uh, you've just heard Irvine is saying we're fully, uh, fully, fully acquitted on this. Uh, what, it, what hasn't generally been known, but what, uh, but what I've fairly recently discovered is that in fact the career investigators who looked into the Irvine case uh, didn't feel the need to spend all that much time looking at it. It was virtually an open and shut case uh, for them, uh, and the decision was there is a hostile environment at Irvine. Right? Never read that, did you? Yeah. Uh, the way they found is that there's a hostile environment at Irvine for all of the reasons that we would think. Uh, because if you if you see all the incidents, it's hard to imagine that it's anything else. So they think that there's a hostile environment at Irvine. Now, I, I, ironically, here's a sort of a funny twist. Um, the um, head of the regional office was not going to find Irvine in violation of the law. Uh, this was back in, uh, I guess it was in 2005 that he had his proposed final solution. What he was going to do is to split the baby. He was going to say, yes, there was a hostile environment, but when you look at, frankly, the little that the regional office usually requires people to do when they find them, he said, well, Irvine's been doing a lot of stuff. So I'm going to say that there was a hostile environment, but that Irvine's administration had acted sufficiently to address it. And so he would have closed it in that way. That was, that was, the, final, that was the final resolution that was ready for signature that went to Washington. And when he describes what, what would have happened next, he looks back at it and says, if we had been permitted to do this, we almost certainly would have received a complaint a year later from the Zionist Organization of America, who would have pointed out that in the next year things got even worse, and that it was clear that the action taken by Irvine hadn't been sufficient, because it got worse and worse. And with that basis, having already found there was a hostile environment, they would have then had to find that the actions taken by Irvine were not sufficient. And then if Irvine didn't really clean up their act, they would have been found in violation. But they didn't say even that. And this is why you don't remember ever reading anything about a hostile environment founded at Irvine, because they were reversed by political appointees in Washington after, after I had left. And as the uh, career, investigative, career investigative staff uh, tells the story, um, they, uh, they wanted to find there was a hostile environment, but the people in Washington who succeeded me um, had two concerns. This is, from the, this is from the regional perspective in San Francisco, the careerist perspective. The first concern was they did not want they did not want to prosecute any anti-Semitism cases ever. They thought they weren't the right agency. If anyone's going to look at it, let it be the Department of Justice, which has discretion, Department of Education, it's it race and national origin. This is not our stuff. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with these cases ever. And the fact is, if you look at the Irvine facts, it's hard to imagine anyone who says, I don't find anti-Semitism here, but I find it somewhere else. I mean, if, if you don't find it there, I'm not sure where you're going to find it, right? So from the, from the point of view of San Francisco careerists, these guys just don't want to find anti-Semitism everywhere, anywhere, and so they want to close down the case. Second thing, though, the second concern, they say, that they attribute uh, to their uh, supervisors, uh, the appointees in Washington, is that these appointees don't want their fingerprints on it. They don't want to They don't want their fingerprints on it. They don't want to be perceived as the person who closed down the anti-Semitism case. So they never gave clear instructions to close down the case. So that's why what happened is the case lasted 
Uh, and, and again, this is after I left, so it's not from inside information when I was official, it's what I've, what I've seen since then. The case lasted for years as the Washington officials went back and forth with the uh, career investigators saying, don't close it, go back, try to find something else, there must be something else. And then, and then try to put other people in uh, with instructions to uh, reverse what the initial investigators had found or to write up some sort of closure uh, memo that wasn't based on what the uh, actual investigators had found. Um, the, other, the other piece that you never heard, and that um, uh, ex it sort of explains another mystery of the case, um, Things got so bad between the investigators who said this is this is unlawful harassment. There's a hostile environment for Jews on this campus, and the Washington folks who didn't want to give them any direction, didn't want to say anything, didn't want to be quotable, but just sort of said, you know, you're doing it wrong. You know, it's not a full investigation, uh, and and told them any anything that would get them to go back, um, but without actually saying you are not to find anti-Semitism here because they didn't want their fingerprints on it. The conflict got so bad between them that Washington threatened to fire the head of the regional office of uh, Office of Civil Rights. And the head of the Office of Civil Rights, who they tried to fire, an Orthodox Jewish man, sued OCR saying that the agency that was supposed to investigate anti-Semitism was in fact engaged in anti-Semitism. Um, he recently lost his case. His case has not been reported anywhere. He recently lost his case. What I find amazing, whether he's right or whether he's wrong, first of all, that he sincerely believes that the case was handled in a particular way and that he was handled in a particular way for reasons that deal with Jewishness and not just the merits of the case. But also that his that the number two person in the agency, an African American, longtime career uh, official who thought that he would probably be promoted if his Jewish boss were canned over this, agrees agrees with the head of the office that Jewishness would play a factor in the way he was treated, and that anyone who denies it is lying. Very strong words for a career official, and these are not disgruntled former people, these are the current leadership, and that the number, the number three person, the regional council, also agrees, essentially this. Right? So what you have in Irvine, in the case still pending, is one of the most explosive cases that I have seen, a case in which passions ran so high, not only on the campus at Irvine, but within the agency that was supposed to address it, that there could be no agreement by the parties and there's so, between the different parts of the agency and so much distrust, so much distrust that one part was trying to fire the other and the other was trying to sue the first. Okay? So these are, some, these are some of the facts. Uh, now I'm going to try to say a little bit about the legal or policy issue and this is what was driving them apart or tearing them apart. Okay? So remember the question is, do Jews have statutory rights? That's step one. The question not just constitutes statutory rights and this matters because Unless you're going to hire an attorney uh, and go into federal court, if you want the federal agency to bring its civil, civil rights enforcement apparatus to bear, the agency that handles 5,000 cases and that can go in and have the power and the, and the forcefulness of the federal government, you need, to, you need to have a statute. You need to have a statute prohibiting the conduct that you complain of. And in this case, it's Title VI, the one that prohibits discrimination in federally funded agencies 
based on race, color, uh, uh, national origin, it doesn't mention religion. Are Jews covered? Um, in some ways it's a difficult question, in some ways it's an easy, an easy question. I'm going to try just very quickly to go through a couple of the issues. The Supreme Court of the United States has actually asked the question before, are Jews a race? They've asked that question. They never ask these questions in the abstract. They ask that question within the meaning of a particular statute. In a case called Shari Tefila versus Cobb, the members of the uh, Silver Spring, Maryland Shari Tefila congregation uh, sued the vandals who had uh, messed up their congregation and, their, and some of their cars and uh, tried to get uh, money from the vandals, sued them for money. Um, under a, um, a, a 19th century statute, the, the current version, current version of 19th century statute that prohibits uh, race discrimination, right? Religion wasn't enough under that statute either. So it went all the way up to the Supreme Court because, because the defendant said, you're not a different, you're not a different race. Okay? At the same time, there was a case where an Arab professor had said that St. Francis College discriminated against me because I'm Arab. As his case went up, it was the same question. St. Francis College case, St. Francis College said Arabs not a different race. What did the court say? The court say, well, yeah, Arabs can sue. Arabs are a different race for purposes of our law, so we will let the Arabs sue. What do they say to the Jews? They say, no, Jews don't don't get to sue. So in the the Shari Tefila congregation, uh, they had lost. They lost. These cases went to the Supreme Court at the same time. The Supreme Court has to decide both at the same time. How are they going to say that Arabs can uh, get money but Jews can't? They end up actually writing an opinion that says it's okay for either one. Why? Because Jews counted as being a different race in the minds of the 19th century legislators who wrote the statute and, and they said this in a, in a footnote, and in the minds of the people who wrote the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. So now, under that 19th century statute, you can sue as a Jew or as an Arab for race discrimination. But what about 1964? Some people, including some of my former colleagues and my successors at the Office for Civil Rights, say that the same logic that says you can sue as a Jew or an Arab for race discrimination under the old laws, that same logic means that you can't under new ones. Because by 1964, if you're going to look at what legislators were thinking, if you're going to look at what words meant in public discourse, by 1964, Jews weren't considered a separate race. Arabs weren't considered a separate race. So if you're going to look to the Shahr Tefila case, it's a totally different answer that comes from the same logic. Wrong, I say. And here's why, why, I've said it, why I've said it's wrong. If you're going to look at the intent of the legislators, there's no legislator whose intent was to create a new kind of right uh, against racial discrimination in 1964. And if you look at how it was understood publicly, that was the public understanding either. The Supreme Court's been very clear on this in a lot of uh, decisions over the last several years in saying that if you look at the Equal Protection Clause, the 19th century constitutional provision, and if you look at Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, they're coextensive. Their coverage is the same. And it doesn't matter whether the words meant something different in the two periods. Why? Because the reason for Title VI 
was to provide a mechanism to enforce the provisions in the Constitution from 100 years ago. Right? So if you care about affecting uh, intent, and you care what the law meant, it's overly narrow just to ask what the word race means. You have to ask, well, what is the, what is the structure? What is the structure intended to mean? And then what you find is, ah, it's going to mean the same thing. Because the whole point of Title VI was to enforce precisely the same rights that the Supreme Court's already explained in charge of you. Okay? Um, so that I think is that I think is the reason why, under current Supreme Court law, which is based on public understanding and a legislative intent of um, uh, statutes dealing with essentially uh, racial identity, uh, Title VI covers Arabs and Jews and Sikhs and other groups to the same extent as the older civil rights laws, um, and why I think it is um, compulsory for OCR to, to deal with it. A lot of different ways of addressing that same question, which I can't go into now. I'll say that in the future, uh, the courts might look at an approach other than looking at public meaning or original intent. They could look at uh, uh, common uh, meaning or popular understanding of what is a Jew. They could look at scientific evidence. They could look at uh, the intent of the discriminator. They could look at the nature of the injury. Uh, there are a lot of different ways of looking at that I've explored. I could address if there are questions. Uh, but w what I would argue is that there is no way of looking at it under which the best answer is that Jews aren't covered while other groups are. I just don't think I've been able to come up with a way of framing the question where the right answer is other groups are protected, but just no, not Jews, not Sikhs, but yes to others. Okay. Um, so, in terms of the general question, uh, is law the is law the solution? I think I'm going to agree with those of my co-panelists who provide caveats and say that there are limitations, uh, that expectations have to be have to be measured. Um, and also that even when one is using the law, the point is not just to win a case, but also to change norms, provide hope, change a culture, so on and so forth, uh, but that law is at least one appropriate way of addressing this problem, even in a country like the United States in which uh, free speech norms are as strong as they are. Okay? Um, now. Uh, with that, um, we do have some time for. Um, I think we have to be at 4 o'clock now. Is it now? Right. 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 So we'll take some questions. Yes, I'd like to address this to Professor Lassen and want to know if you have looked at Brandeis and its reaction to the invitation to Michael Oren and other activities on campus yes, that that's... kind of curl my hair. I think it's appalling. Uh, <laughs> My son. Hey, I'm speaking about it tomorrow, uh, today. Oh. Oh. Okay, well, I'm, 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 I, I, have, I have one, uh, uh, I, I guess in the crush of time, I didn't, I didn't mention this, but I, did, I was going to say a way to handle um, uh, hecklers at, let's say, Oren's uh, appearance at Ir Irvine. This is what I'd like to run by people, especially my colleagues. Uh, when controversial speakers appear on campus, in advance of the, ev of the event, um, notify and clearly announce uh, to all people, especially students, that you will have a chance to um, to state your concerns, to uh, uh, make your comments, to ask questions, but 
if you disrupt the speaker, there will be consequences, and those consequences will range from suspension to expulsion, and then carry through on your threats. This is the students. I don't know how you end up with the public yet, but I'm working through that in my mind. Um, I've had uh, uh, varying responses to that, but I think mostly favorable. As to Brandeis, um, my son went to Brandeis for a semester. Why did he leave? Because uh, Brandeis, uh, we're, we're orthodox, or at least traditional. Brandeis wouldn't let him uh, take off the second day of Rosh Hashanah uh, to, uh, to, because he had a lab. This was when he was a freshman. And it wouldn't let him reschedule it at a t uh, time that wasn't like uh, just, before, uh, just before Saturday evening, or Friday evening. Uh, so he had had enough in a, one semester. And I wrote to the president of Brandeis, and I said, uh, this is appalling at a place like Brandeis um, to have this kind of a situation. Uh, and I got back a, 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 a kind of a lukewarm apology, but for the most part defending the university's right to do what it did. I'm not surprised that Brandeis disinvited Oren. Um, I think it was appalling. And I, as my understanding is, they reinvited them, right? They reinvited them, but to give in to that kind of a pressure, it's appalling. It's what um, as Stephen was saying. It's it really amounts to what's called a heckler's veto. It allows the audience, the naysayers, to veto the speaker. What the police are supposed to do under the Constitution, when there's a heckler in the audience, is to arrest the heckler, as they did in Irvine. But it was tough because they had it so orchestrated; they had to do it one by one. And uh, the effect was to really uh, block the speech. But it's a heckler's veto, which is unconstitutional. You must protect the speaker, however offensive his thoughts uh, may be. What do you do when there's a controversial speaker on campus? Maybe you shouldn't invite him in the first place. But if you do, you must afford him uh, ample security. And you must give equal access to all student groups to hear him. And you must guarantee his right to speak. So I, I hope I've answered your question, but uh, I was appalled. Any other comments on this? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. About Irvine, um, the you see Chancellor or uh, somebody under him appointed a panel to investigate, and the panel that was appointed, the people on the panel, are some of the very people who are genocidal inciters themselves. So that is my understanding about where that case is now. That there's you know about this panel of investigation? I'm aware that the president of the university system appointed a panel to address a series of incidents at multiple campuses, including San Diego and possibly also Irvine. Is that the panel you're referring to, the UL yeah. panel? Yeah, yes. and you, are you familiar with the, con the content of that panel, the who was chosen for that panel? I know the Zionist Organization of America issued a press release that described uh, two members of the uh, panel, uh, including the name Imam Jihad, uh, sticks in my mind um, in ways that uh, uh, <laughs> creates questions, yes. My understanding is that the Muslim uh, uh, Council, what's it called? The Muslim, Muslim Student, Union. Student Union is appealing is the, the decision to suspend it for a year. Uh, and that, um, as, uh, as Ken pointed out, uh, the reason that it was suspended was not so much for its, uh, its, its actions there, is that it misrepresented it lied to the, they lied to the administration. Why don't they just come right out, as Ruth Weiss might do, I think she would do, and say, look, this is the case, you did this, it's wrong, and we're going to state, the, uh, state our reasons for suspending you. Yeah, that's not happening. Yeah. Uh, question. Okay. Um, 
I would like to briefly elaborate on the European perspective, and you can probably hear it come from Europe. Um, Professor Tsaisis, um, you mentioned um, the Convention on Cybercrime by the Council of Europe. And um, Europe in general is um, kind of split between countries um, that are um, that strongly want to regulate um, free speech, anti-Semitism, discrimination, Holocaust denial, and so on. These are mainly the continental European countries, whereas on the other side, um, there are countries like Great Britain and the Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, etc., um, which contradict this um, tendency to legislate and to regulate free speech. And a prominent figure is the Oxford scholar Timothy Garton Ash, who very strongly contradicts the regulation and legislation of free speech. And he argues that um, in those countries that have strict laws banning Holocaust denial, anti-Semitic incitement, etc., um, there are still many Holocaust denials. There are um, strong right-wing extremist parties, etc. Um, so I would be interested um, in your comments on Timothy Garton Ash's position um, whether legislation is a remedy against anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial, or whether things keep on going no matter if there is legislation or not. Yeah, you know, it's a, um, first of all, I, I do think that the overwhelming trend in Europe uh, is to limit hate speech, and that much of that comes from the realization of what happened uh, with uh, the Nazis. It's true in Sweden, Norway, uh, uh, in uh, uh, Finland, uh, Switzerland, uh, France, uh, Spain, Germany. Uh, uh, they all uh, Austria. That's right. And you know, going to, to non Australia, if you you know, just uh, still somewhat connected with Britain. And, and the the laws in Britain against hate speech have been around since the early before the Holocaust. Uh, but uh, so I do think that there's that trend. On the other hand, there you know, you, your question also poses the question of do these things continue irrespective of the fact there are limitations? And the answer is yes. You know, just like sexual harassment. You have laws against sexual harassment. The sexual harassment then no. And if you had, I mean, all, all manner of laws that protect human dignity, does that mean it ends? No. I mean, there are laws against uh, uh, sexual general mutilation of women. Does that mean that there is no more of it? There is. The unfortunate thing, the horrible thing, is that there is. Uh, so, the the deeper question, I think, and this goes to Bruce Weiss, Weiss's point, is can anti-Semitism even be ended? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, uh, Steph mentioned uh, Derek Bell. Years ago, I heard him say that racism in this country can never be ended. And when I heard this, I was very skeptical. And I thought, how could, you know, this is so pessimistic. How would you, how would you say it can never be ended? And I thought to myself, well, what if I thought about the question, can anti-Semitism ever be ended? Is it really feasible? And I'm not sure it's possible. So that I think one of the things is that you create a deterrence if and you also send it, you communicate a message. This is not going to be appropriate in a pluralistic uh, society. And, and at the same time, you deter. Some people will just be afraid. They'll think, I'm not going to do it. And so that you establish certain norms of decency. You protect, and it also sends comfort, I think, to women that just keep going with sexual harassment, that they realize, that the country realizes, understands, or the state understands, that if they're harassed, this is a real harm to them. 
and the Jews and others will understand that these are real hard that they're experiencing. Can I ask you a question on a follow-up on this? How about like Gert Weil was that case, and where, whether he, uh, in Hong, where he should make those type of criticism against Islamic people, where there's the thought that the, the minority group uses that as an affirmative sword to stifle speech, and that it really, rather than use as a sword, a sword to stop racism or ethnic intimidation, it's really used as a sword to stifle the, the debate itself. And what are your thoughts on that? I think though that's a very interesting point. I think it's a very difficult question, and it's certainly a very legitimate uh, perspective that uh, is given. I, I think ultimately the way to deal with that is that there have to be clear definitions so that you have to identify what it is that's being prohibited. In but it does, doesn't that tend to suggest that the American view might be the better view, which is confronting it, like uh, uh, Boston says? And, with, then we're, and then we're I, and then we're going to go to the next question. So I'll be extremely, extremely quick uh, because I don't, I'd like to get other people up. I think not, and the reason is that when you look at the story, I'm oh, sorry, I think not, the reason is that, although I think it's a legitimate point of view that you're expressing, so I, I don't want to belittle it, that the reason I think it, that the American view is not correct is that we know that Nazi speech was critical. We know that pro-slavery speech in the United States, in my opinion, Calhoun's views were critical to, to the uh, Civil War. Savage views about Native Americans were critical to the misappropriation of their land. Uh, views, anti-Tutsi views in Rwanda were critical but, to the genocide. I'm, 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 I'm sorry, we, 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 I want to make sure other people We'll, we'll talk, we'll talk shortly. Sure. Okay. Uh, Ed, I know you've been trying to go on. Yeah, I just want to, I, I think Stephen Feldman's got a very important insight about how um, legislation, in particular hate speech legislation, often more reflects the society it comes from than dictates the norms of the society that it comes from. And I, I think uh, actually Canada is quite a good example of that. You know, I sometimes do fear, not fear, I, I sometimes get concerned when I hear in the United States people talk about Canada's anti-hate laws that you sometimes do to Canada's hate legislation what, you know, Michael Moore does to Canada's healthcare system. That has paint way too rosy a picture of what's going on. Um, I think that Canada's hate legislation has been somewhat effective, but it, it to a great extent, it reflects the it, it reflects the inherent ethos of the society more than has dictated the um, uh, ethos of the society. That this is a fairly tolerant society, and so it kind of reflects that back on itself. When it I should say though, when it comes and it's been effective when it comes to Ernst Zundel and neo-Nazi speech. When it comes to anti-Zionist speech, it's a whole different. You're, you've got a whole different ball of wax there. And on campus, the, that tendency towards what we can, what I consider to be false even-handedness, but the kind of relativity of violence and the even-handedness of the discourse about the Middle East um, plays out in the hate speech debates too. So now you have as many, as many complaints that say Zionism is hate speech as anti-Zionism is hate speech. And, and you've just kind of replayed this whole debate about what is Zionism on campus into the hate speech category, and you're kind of playing that out now in interpretation of legislation, rather than in, um, you know, in, in the underlying context. So does it, in that context, I don't think it solves any problems, it just replicates them. I have to point out that the United States is the only Western democracy that, that uh, regulates hate, uh, that um, refuses to regulate hate speech. Uh, and as I often ask my civil liberty seminar, does that make the, uh, all the other Western democracies wrong? And I just leave that uh, question hanging there, even though I criticize 
um, uh, the Canadian uh, law in, particular, in, in very particular uh, uh, ways. Uh, but it, it seems to me that we are headed um, in the direction that I think Alex would have, and I think in some ways I would have us go, and that is to uh, start to tweak the hate speech laws so that it does, um, it does cover some of the anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric that leads, uh, uh, clearly leads to violence in this country. Sir, was that a question or a signal? Or? Well, I, I had a, a quick question, actually. Okay. Um, I attended Essex State, and in reference to the 2002 blood libel, um, have you heard about that? They distributed yes. posters across campus saying that Jews killed Palestinian babies for matzah for Passover, and um, they claimed that they didn't print it up or distribute it. And then that following May, so that was the end of April, following May, there was a Israel birthday party by Hillel in the Cesar Chavez Student Center, and they were so surrounded and so threatened that the police had to escort Hillel off campus. And what happened was the two student organizations, GUPS and the MSA, basically just lost internet privileges for a year. Um, does that seem like an appropriate punishment, or I don't know if you know more facts on it than I do? Yeah, I mean, those are, uh, let me try very briefly, the, those, are, those are two separate, very disturbing incidents, although right. the fact that one followed the other, I think yeah. a very interesting illustration, when you have uh, the sort of hate speech reflected in that flyer, I think the language on the flyer was a picture of a dead Palestinian baby, mm -hmm. and the language was uh, canned Palestinian uh, uh, meat, uh, according to Jewish right under American license. Um, and then it was shortly after that was distributed that we had the anti-Jewish um, riot or near riot at the, at the Hillel. Um, I, there are a lot of different perspectives that I've heard on this. I noticed that uh, at the desk earlier they were selling Ron Rosenbaum's uh, uh, anthology, uh, which includes uh, Laurie's, Z Professor uh, Z Laurie Zolos' uh, eyewitness testimony uh, on, that, uh, on that incident. Um, on the first incident, President Francis Corrigan, I mean, you were, you were at San Francisco State, but I guess a few years later, um, he actually responded in a way that I thought was extremely strong. Uh, he uh, identified the apparent perpetrators uh, and he, ref he, he called the police on them. Uh, and he indicated that uh, uh, charges would be pressed in the event that um, uh, and, and I think that was on both. Uh, and he wrote very strongly worded letters, both to the organizations that appeared to be beyond the situation in the Hillel, and also to the campus community, in which he very, very sternly indicated that there would be punishments, right? So it may be that the punishments that actually got doled out in the end were not what one would expect, uh, but I actually think that the strongly worded messages that he sent out were much better than what I've seen from just about any other president. Um, so I think that the general concern of administrators not doing anything, claiming that uh, actions are covered by the First Amendment or academic freedom, sort of ignoring it, or making bland general statements against racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, yada yada, but without pinpointing anything, I think that's a real problem. If anything, I think that Corrigan actually addressing the students out directly saying we'll bring in the police and then telling the campus is something that all administrators should do. Um, so there's another group coming in. Um, I think it's time to go to the auditorium. Thank you.